one verse of Revelation 22, verse 17, where we read, The Spirit and the Bride say, Come. And let the one who hears say, Come. And let the one who is thirsty come. Let the one who desires take the water of life without price. Dear brothers and sisters in our Lord Jesus Christ, I think every Christian um, knows quite a lot about Revelation 21 and 22. Maybe not so much about chapter 20 and chapter 19 and 18, but Revelation 21 and 22 are well known to us because these chapters are the capstone of the whole Bible. These chapters contain wonderful vistas of Christian hope and comfort. They point us to the grand finale of God's work in the world, his work of redemption. And the language of these two chapters literally strains, strains the capacity of a human being to understand. There will be a new heaven and a new earth, we read in these chapters. And on that new earth, there will be a holy city descending from heaven to this world. A city with massive walls, a city with 12 gates, a city so vast that it would be possible for millions upon millions of people to live in it. No small city, but a very great city into which flow people from all tribes and tongues and nations to live there forevermore in blessed communion with God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. And all these promises for the future of which Revelation 21 and 22 speak are connected by Jesus in this chapter with his own coming, his own appearing, his revelation as the glorious Son of God and Savior. And so we read Revelation 21 and 22, and we feel powerfully inspired to recommit to the Lord Jesus Christ because we know that he is coming and we will have with him a most glorious uh, union that will endure forever. This afternoon, however, it probably would be healthy for us to admit to one another, even if we're not in the habit of admitting things to one another, it sometimes is good to admit to one another the weaknesses and flaws that are present in our Christian faith and life, And one of the weaknesses I believe that we all have as Christians is that sometimes it's really, really hard to live toward that glorious, promised future. And sometimes it all seems rather remote to us to think of living in the the holy city, descending from God to be here in this world. The symbolism is profound. And as I said earlier, it stretches our imagination beyond even our capacity It's difficult for us to live toward that future all the time, to do so consistently. And there are many reasons for that. First of all, we could identify the fact that we are living in a culture that doesn't really live towards much at all. We're living in a culture that's all about today. It's about the here and the now. Whatever whatever expectations people have and whatever planning they do, it's all pretty short-term, 
Maybe they have a one-year plan for their lives or a five-year plan or they have a plan for retirement. Maybe they even have a plan for how they want their memorial service to go when their friends gather to remember them as they have taken their leave. But the reality is that we live in a culture of the here and the now, a culture of, the, of pleasure. And if people are thinking about the future, it's only because they are hoping for even more pleasure than they already have right now. And we should be humble, and we should admit that that culture of pleasure in which we live has an impact upon us also. In fact, I would say that that pleasure-oriented culture has a corrosive effect on the church. It eats away like acid into our faith and erodes our expectations. Uh, how many of us would, would honestly be able to say that we're, we're literally living, as it were, on our tiptoes, straining towards those beautiful things that have been promised? If you think about what fills your mind, isn't it really most of the time just the stuff of daily life? what you're doing today, what's expected of you today, what your job um, requires of you, what your teacher requires of you at school, and so forth. The love of pleasure, the love of money, the love of power, the love of self, these are the idolatries of our age. And all of these idolatries have the singular power to erode our hope and to make us people who are really people of the moment, people of today, or at most tomorrow as well. And so when you are in a culture like that, it's actually really difficult to keep on singing, Come, Lord Jesus, Maranatha. Maybe you have to first be in a real crisis. Maybe you have to be dealing with your own mortality in a very direct way before you sing that hymn with genuine longing and conviction. But it's not just pleasure that can diminish our future hope. Troubles can do that too. And most of us know quite a lot about troubles. And if we don't know yet, then just wait a while and some troubles will come your way. And troubles also have a way of eroding our hope. People can come to say in their own hearts, you know, we've been waiting for so long. We've been praying for so long. When will this trouble end? Lord, must it be so? Could you not in your sovereignty arrange things differently for me, my loved ones, for my people? And so the challenges to Christian faith and hope are many. And not one of us should ever think for one second that we have some kind of inherent capacity to just keep living towards the future. That's not a natural human capacity to do that because if God left you to yourselves, do you know where you'd be in the end? You'd be immersed in cynicism and despair and you'd just be trying to survive and get through a day and hope for maybe a little bit better for tomorrow, but you wouldn't be burning with ardent hope for the day of the Lord Jesus Christ. Today, though, on Pentecost Sunday, we remember that God has not left us alone to figure everything out for ourselves or to just power ourselves through to the future. Jesus Christ ascended into heaven 40 days after his blessed resurrection. And before he ascended, he told his disciples to 
not attempt anything great in terms of Christian mission until he said, you receive power from on high. And so there they were in Jerusalem and they were waiting and they didn't know exactly when it would be. But on that Pentecost day long ago, thousands of Jewish people from all over the world were gathered in the grounds of the temple to celebrate the Jewish feast and suddenly these amazing things happened that we read about in Acts 2. A sound like that of a mighty rushing wind filled the room where the apostles were standing and then this incredible thing happened. Supernatural tongues of fire came down and were hovering over all of the heads of the apostles and and others as well. There were 120 disciples and, and all of them had this tongue of fire coming down over their head. And Peter explains that this was an outward manifestation of the inward arrival of the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit long promised by Ezekiel and Isaiah and Jeremiah and also Joel that Holy Spirit had finally come. And the result of the coming of the Holy Spirit was all of these apostles declaring the mighty works of the Lord, particularly the mighty works of the Lord, which he had done in Jesus Christ in his life of obedience, his life of astonishing miracles, his incredible teaching about the kingdom of God, his sacrificial death, his glorious resurrection, his ascension, and his rule at the right hand of God. These were the mighty works of God that all these spirit-filled apostles began to declare when they were filled with the Spirit on the day of Pentecost. And from that day forward, the Spirit of God has always been present in the Christian church. The Christian church has never had one day of its existence without being indwelt by the Spirit of God. The church is a temple of the Holy Spirit since Acts 2, and every single believer, as Peter says in his first letter, is a living stone in that temple of God. Why are you all living stones? Because you're filled with the living Spirit. That's why the living Spirit came on the day of Pentecost, and since then he has promised to all believers, and as often as you seek in faith, the indwelling of the Spirit God will be faithful, and God will make you also a living stone of the Spirit's presence. And it's only because the Spirit is present that we can believe. It's only because the Spirit is present that we can be here this afternoon as people who still have hope, who can read Revelation 21 and 22 and and just be absolutely encouraged and renewed and reconvicted and looking forward with renewed intensity to the blessed day of the coming of the Lord Jesus Christ. And remarkably, the Holy Spirit in our text of this afternoon is, is himself described as the waiting spirit. Isn't that remarkable? The Spirit of God, who is himself God, is waiting. Because what does he say? The Spirit says, come. The Holy Spirit who dwells within the church is a waiting spirit, a spirit who is banking on the promises of God the Father to be fulfilled and is waiting with eager 
uh, anticipation for all of those promises of God the Father to become reality in the lives of God's children. It's a remarkable thing to think about. Spirit of God, who is himself God, praying with eager anticipation and saying, come. We can, we can think of all the different words of the Holy Trinity that we encounter in the book of Revelation, also here in chapter 22. We find in this chapter and throughout Revelation that God the Father speaks frequently. And what does God the Father often say? He says things like this, the time is near. And we also hear frequently in the book of Revelation, God the Son speaking. And what does God the Son say? Well, typically he says, I'm coming. That's the one thing he wants you to know more than anything else. I'm coming. He says, I'm coming repeatedly throughout Revelation three times in this chapter alone. We hear the Son of God saying, I am coming. But it's not only God the Father who speaks. It's not only God the Son who speaks. Also here in Revelation 22, it's God the Holy Spirit who speaks. He hears the words of the Father, and he hears the words of the Son, and his response to that in the mystery of the divine community is to cry out, Come! Come, Lord Jesus, says the Holy Spirit. Lord Jesus, come and let all of your promises for your people be fulfilled. Let the holy city appear, says the Holy Spirit. Let it come down from heaven, and let it become the eternal dwelling place of all the children of God. Well, it stands to reason then that the people who are indwelt by the Spirit, the people who are filled by the Spirit, would have the same longing that the Spirit himself has. We know the Spirit is praying, come, and people in whom he dwells, people whom he sanctifies, people whom he empowers, people to whom he gives perseverance, those people are going to be filled with that powerful expectation and that passionate hope for the day of the Lord Jesus Christ. If you are a spirit-filled believer and a spirit-filled church, then you will be living consciously and intentionally towards that beautiful future. And you'll do everything possible to nurture that Christian hope. Now, it's important to see that the church is described here in in this verse 17 of Acts 22, as the bride. She's the bride because she's the beloved one of the groom, the bridegroom whose name is Jesus. Jesus came into the world to get a bride. He came into the world to sanctify that bride. We are the people of Jesus. We are his bride. And so if you belong to the church, if you're a Christian, and you're responding in your heart to the promises of God, then you may know that Jesus Christ has set his heart upon you with a deep, passionate love in the same way that a young man might set his heart upon a young woman with a deep, passionate love. You know, these images are there for a reason. They're meant to make the love of Jesus concrete. And we're meant to feel in our souls that we are the dearly loved people of that wonderful bridegroom. Jesus Christ. 
By the power of the Spirit, we love Jesus as he loves us. And by the power of the Spirit, we cannot wait until the day when Jesus appears. If I may pursue the analogy a little further, imagine a young man and a young woman who fall in love. Um, I know such a young man who fell in love with a girl just before she had to go home, five provinces over, and he wouldn't be able to see her again for another year. You know, that's how things were back in the days. People didn't have so much money, and they didn't have internet and emails and text messaging, so you could write letters, and and then just wait for that day. Now imagine you're the bride and the bride-to-be, and you're waiting for the arrival of your your fiancé. And the days seem sometimes long, and you're filled with ardent expectation. That's the kind of thing that happens to Christians when they are filled with the Holy Spirit. We are the bride, and the groom is on the way. He's coming to take us to himself and to unite us to himself in the perpetual joy of that marriage of which all the prophets and the law speak, that intimate union between God and his holy people. You see, the love of pleasure and the love of money and the love of power Those things dull our expectation. They make us spiritually dull. We're not not standing on our tiptoes anymore. And we're not praying, Maranatha, come Lord Jesus anymore. But when the Spirit of God is at work in your heart, dear people of God, then you know what happens. Then you know that nothing in this present life can entirely satisfy you. Just like that woman who's waiting for the arrival of her groom, no doubt she's experiencing plenty of good things in her daily life, but none of them satisfy her because she's waiting for her groom to show up at the airport so that she can marry him and begin a new life with him in the blessed unity of marriage. And so when the Spirit of God is present in you, then you can never be completely content with what you have now today in this broken world where the spirit of the lord is at work desires are born in you and desires are nurtured which cannot be satisfied by anything in your present life now do you know why actually the holy spirit so successfully is able to create in you a longing for the new jerusalem Why is it the case that where the Spirit is, people begin to think about God's promised future? Well, we can draw in here some teaching of the Apostle Paul. The Apostle Paul says that the coming of the Spirit is, in fact, the coming of the future. It's remarkable that in his letters, the Apostle Paul frequently says things like, God's Spirit is given to us as a down payment or a guarantee of the things that are to come. Now, you know what a down payment is? A down payment is the beginning of the, whole, of the whole shebang. So you buy a house, you make a down payment, and, and that guarantees for the seller that pretty soon the rest of the money will be there too. And that's what's going on when, when we read about the events on the day of Pentecost. The day of Pentecost was the beginning of the promised future. This was God's down payment on what was to come finally on the day of Christ. So the coming of the Spirit is allowing us to taste 
already now the good things of the age to come. It's remarkable that in in Hebrews chapter 6, the apostle says that Christians are able to taste already now the good things that are to come. So good things are coming, and we can taste them already now because we have already received the Spirit And the presence of the Spirit in our lives is God's down payment and God's guarantee that we will receive the full inheritance which he has promised to every Christian. In the latter part of verse 17, we again find the word come, but now it has a little bit different sense. The Spirit and the bride say come, and let the one who hears say come. And let the one who is thirsty come. Let the one who desires take the water of life without price. It's interesting how this verse blends two different senses of the word come. It speaks on the one hand about the coming of the Lord Jesus. But then it also extends an invitation to everyone who hears to come. You know what that tells us? It tells us that the waiting church you, the waiting church of Sardis, you were also an inviting church. As you wait for Jesus to come to bring the holy city and all of that splendid new life in the holy city, you can't help but say to all the people in your orb, come! Someone is coming, Jesus, and therefore you must come now to Jesus. In other words, a truly spirit-filled church, a truly Pentecostal church, and Reformed churches are meant to be Pentecostal. We shouldn't leave that name just for a certain brand of Christianity that, that holds to speaking in tongues and the like. Though Every Reformed church should pride itself on being a true Pentecostal church because there is actually no such thing as a Christian church that is not Pentecostal. It doesn't exist. Every Christian church is Pentecostal. Because every Christian church exists because of Pentecost. Every Christian church exists because the Holy Spirit came and Jesus Christ, by the power of the Holy Spirit, is gathering for himself a worshiping people. So a spirit-filled, waiting church will inevitably be an evangelistic church. And if a church is not evangelistic, if a church does not think constantly about its mission in the world that God has given to it to bear witness to God, then it might well be asked, is that church really filled with the Spirit? And is that church really standing on its tippy toes waiting for the appearing of the Son of God? Because if you are waiting for the appearing of the Son of God, then it will be for you impossible to be silent and you will be wanting to say to every person you meet, come, Come to Jesus. Let me tell you about Jesus. But we shouldn't think only of people out in the community. We can think even of our own covenant youth. You know, covenant youth aren't always aware of the extremely uh, privileged position that God has given them to know his truth, to know his gospel, to know the promises of salvation. But not all covenant young people have responded You know, there are covenant young people who are not drinking that living water. It's absolutely true. They exist in every church. 
Covenant young people who are not drinking the living water, they, they kind of know about it, they've heard about it, it's been proclaimed to them, it's been taught to them by fathers and mothers and by their pastors and elders and their Christian school teachers, but they're still keeping it at a distance and they're not internalizing it, they're not making it their own by their own personal faith. And so also to those covenant youth, just as to the community in which we live, we may say as a Pentecostal church, come, let the one who is thirsty come. Let the one who hears say come. Let the one who desires take the water of life without price. You know, we live in a thirsty world, don't we? A world that the psalmist compares to a wilderness in which there is no water. And the psalmist pictures for us, for example, in Psalm 42, a wild animal sniffing the breeze, hoping to catch a little bit of the aroma of H2O somewhere so that the animal might go and drink. And, you know, maybe you feel like that sometimes. Maybe people you know feel like that. I I know for sure there are thousands of people in Metro Vancouver and the Fraser Valley who, who feel like they're living in a wasteland and there's nothing satisfying them. There's nothing giving them inspiration. They feel like they are among the living dead. They know. They know there must be something more. They know there must be something deeper. There must be something glorious beyond all the the humdrum things of daily life. Well, when you meet people like that who are thirsty, please show them the living water and invite them to come. You know, that's part of evangelism. We don't just say a bunch of facts about Jesus. You know, evangelism is saying the facts, telling the truth about Jesus, and then saying, come, come, come and taste. You have no idea, people, how good this is. And, and we should be able to say that from our, own, from our own experience, shouldn't we? We should be able to say, people, that living water, that is so good. And you know what the living water represents in the Bible most of the time? living water represents the power and the presence of the Holy Spirit. We read this, for example, in John 7, verse 30, 39. The Lord Jesus says there, whoever believes in me, as the scripture has said, out of his heart will flow rivers of living water. And then John adds an explanatory word. John 7, verse 39. Listen to this carefully. Now this he said about the Spirit, whom those who believed in him were to receive. You know, evangelism, yeah, we need to tell people about sin. We need to tell people about condemnation. It's true. Can't really evangelize without some conviction of sin. But you know what we need to talk about even more than about sin? A lot more, actually. We need to talk about the living water. And we need to hold up such an enticing vision for the people in our community that it will almost be for them irresistible. And they'll want to know about this living water They'll say, give, give me some of that living water too. And then we can say, well, this is how you may receive it. You may receive it by faith in the Son of God. Brothers and sisters, if you are thirsty for living water, you don't have to wait for the future to be refreshed. It can happen to all Christians that they go through phases of their life where everything seems sterile, And they don't seem to have a lot of conviction and a lot of joy. And 
If truth be told, they're, they're thirsty. And if you're thirsty, don't imagine that you have to wait all the way to the appearing of the Lord Jesus Christ in glory to be satisfied. No, because by faith in the Son of God and through humble believing prayer, each one of you may receive today and tomorrow and next week and next year and all the days of your life. You may receive through the simplicity of faith this magnificent indwelling presence of the Holy Spirit and you will be refreshed. The Holy Spirit is a mighty refresher because the Holy Spirit brings to you the living power of Jesus, the Redeemer, who dealt with sin, who dealt with the devil, who dealt with death, who rose, who ascended, who is living, who's on the move in the world. That living power of Jesus is poured into your hearts through the Holy Spirit given on the day of Pentecost. And when you receive this Jesus, maybe for the first time, but maybe for the tenth time and the hundredth time and the ten thousandth time, every time you receive Jesus through the believing power of humble prayer, then I may promise you in the name of the Lord that you will be satisfied. And you will say, lots of things are disturbing. Lots of things are troubling. Lots of things are so deeply challenging. But my soul is satisfied. I am satisfied in the grace and the goodness and the love and the mercy and the compassion of the Lord. Dear brothers and sisters, it can all be yours for free. The living water has no price attached to it. Can't buy it. You can only receive it. And God is a great giver. And he wants you to be the great receivers. He wants you to be the ones who just open your heart and your life and let his grace flow in. There's one more thing to add yet. It's important that we pray for the Spirit to fill us. But it's also important to remember that the Spirit works through the Word of God. And right here in verse in this verse of Revelation 22 and in this whole chapter of Revelation 22, we keep hearing about the words of the Lord Jesus. Verse 7 says, Behold, I am coming soon. Blessed is the one who keeps the words of the prophecy of this book. And verse 9 says, You must not do that. I am a fellow servant with you and your brothers, the prophets, and with those who keep the words of this book. And verse 10 mentions again the words of the prophecy of this book. And verses 18 and 19 of the same chapter warn readers not to add or to subtract from the words of the book of this prophecy. This is a chapter in which the Holy Spirit plays a central role, but it's a chapter that speaks in a very full way also about the word of God. And that tells us that we may never separate the Spirit of God from the Word of God. It's really interesting that uh, when you compare Colossians and Ephesians, Colossians and Ephesians are in many ways parallel letters. They have a lot of similar content. So it it looks like Paul wrote one letter, probably Colossians first, and then he wrote another letter using the model of his first letter, and he slightly adapted it, and he added a few things, and then he sent it off to the Ephesians. 
And so if you go to Ephesians chapter 5, there's that famous line at verse 19 where Paul says, and be filled with the Spirit. And then if you go to the parallel passage in the parallel letter, Colossians 3, verse 16, it says, let the Word of God dwell in you richly. So how are you filled with the Spirit? You're filled with the Spirit as you let the Word of God dwell in you richly. Spirit nurtures future hope. And how does the Spirit nurture future hope? Most of the time, the Spirit does that through the living and abiding Word of God. And so may the Spirit of Pentecost work in you through the words of Scripture, and may you never fail. May you never fail to feed your heart with Scripture, because in this way, the Holy Spirit will fill you. And so to summarize, waiting for the Holy City, that is a hard thing to do. There are many challenges to Christian hope. But when Scripture is in our hand, and prayer is in our heart, and is expressed through our lips, then we know that we will be filled with the Spirit. We will persevere. We will walk, and we will not be faint. We will run, and we will not be weary. The Lord will renew our strength, and we shall mount up with wings like eagles as we wait the glorious day of our Lord Jesus Christ. Amen.